Welcome to Making Conversations, a podcast from makers Gemma Millen and Robin Galway. Today we are making conversations with art jeweller and designer maker Clodagh Malloy as part of our collaborative series with ACJ SNI. Hello Clodagh, it's an absolute pleasure to speak with you today for this third episode with ACJ SNI. Could you tell us where you're based and give us a quick description of your making practice? Hi Gemma, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be asked and to do this. I am based in Dublin in the Republic of Ireland. I work from a studio in my back garden, which is very non-glamorous. Generally speaking, it's quite messy because it's all different projects at different stages. So when you walk in, it's for a stranger, it's a bit like, oh, right, lovely in here. <laughs> it was actually quite messy. My design practice is based on a project called Share Stories, which was part of my master's project that I graduated from, from the National College of Art and Design in Dublin, which was this summer, 2022. And it's based on ideas around the subject of mental health and addressing stigmas and highlighting the, like, the strengths needed to come through it and to live with it. It comes mainly from a personal experience that I've had going through my family. And I just found the whole area frustrating. And so I kind of translated it into basically my art practice, like therapy almost to get it through it and then to actually try and change certain stigmas that I'd found through that period of my life and our life here because it's a, we're a family. Like So I had been collecting stories from friends. I opened it up and basically each piece of jewellery is about a different story and it's each story it's tailored to specific words in the story that jumped out and each piece is different. I dabble in and out quite often. My pieces that you see at the moment are mainly made of copper. They're hollow formed. They are acid etched with messages on them. So each story, as far as possible, I like to integrate the story itself, embed it into the piece that I'm making. So at the moment, what I'm doing is I'm acid etching into the copper the words of the story or maybe a passage from that original story. And then it's press formed into different shapes. I use 3D printing to do mock-ups. I use 3D printing to make sanding blocks, to do problem solving. Since the COVID lockdown, I was actually just into the beginning of my second semester of my master's. And I was really lucky. I think I'm quite lucky in general, actually. But I was quite lucky to have my practice at home where I had built up some tools and equipment and ideas. Like I do a lot of enameling. So I had a kiln at home and I had my enamels. I had my workshop space, generally speaking, which I'm very, very glad to have. But I found that I needed to do something else with it. And I was, as they quite lucky in that I could go and get a 3D printer because I'd started it in the college to do a bit of 3D printing investigations I was doing faces printing faces and I was trying to do ceramic slip casts of them so I had all these ceramic faces and I couldn't get them kiln fired because everybody had locked down I couldn't get through to any ceramic people who were actually had access to their kilns because a lot of people down here that I've noticed just from that investigation was they actually share a kiln with someone else in a business center or they post out and deliver back so I found that that was a dead end I couldn't actually do anything that I had all these faces so I just switched it and got myself a 3D printer and I started using that. So that has been quite a turning point because it opened up a new digital form of design that I wasn't really into before because I had been mostly hand skill based and I love soldering, I love filing, I love cutting. I am just uh, really hands on. So I was really adverse to it for a long while to actually doing it, but I was forced to do it through COVID. But what it actually has done is it's opened up 
other possibilities of my own work where I could just design something and print it out in a few hours. Like some of them take days, but some of them are a few hours. And you could actually say, actually, I've had it in my hand now and I am quite tactile. So I like to pick up pieces. So when we did the Lisburn linen project, I thought that was just amazing because one, it was a different material I hadn't worked with. I had quilted before for my kids and stuff like that and given to persons, but I hadn't used linen or material as an art form myself. So I was really challenged and that actually in turn educated what I actually brought towards the collectibles and curiosities exhibition. <laughs> I forgot the name there. <laughs> so every piece of history in my timeline is kind of building and building and changing and it's like a working practice. It keeps evolving slightly. So yes, yeah, so the 3D printing moved into a different area so I could actually pick up the pieces and look at them and go yes or no. And then with the linen project, the tactile use of using just material. So I decided not to actually use any of my jewellery tools specifically because this is an opportunity that the ACJS and I have actually given me because it, that was an open call and you had to apply for it. And, and I was delighted to be accepted into it. And I was like, oh, you got to use this as an opportunity to push yourself because I'm not in college anymore. A lot of people haven't had the opportunity to go. So again, very lucky to have done that. But I like to use it as a mechanism to push myself and try and see what else is out there. So my practice is quite ongoing. It doesn't look like it from the outside, but behind the scenes, if you're in the studio, you see a lot of part projects and part ideas just to see hanging around what's going to happen to them. Some of them linger there for years and some of them just don't go anywhere. And some of the projects have just opened up within a few days. For example, like the my favourite piece at the moment is one I did for my master's degree. It's a picture of a girl and it's enamelled in the centre and it has like puffed out silhouette and that just evolved from one center piece of a girl the whole story is about a woman that I know who has gone through quite a tough life a tough upbringing and I think she's a fantastic woman like in her piece of writing her first few lines were I don't remember having a particularly happy childhood and my first memory was when I was seven and it was her father giving out to her so I was just wanted to bring her back to being a child so in my head I wanted to start off with a, just a typical kind of graphic of a child and see where that went so I wanted to have a mixture of metals because I am very metal based. I know we were talking about what materials I use but I, I use copper because it was basically cheaper than silver. I didn't have the budget to do it in silver but it was to an advantage because silver is expensive, it's very precious but the copper gave a different level. You could change the colour of it with patinas. You could make a mistake and it would be okay. Or you could just dump it and do it again. You know, where silver is so precious and it costs so much. It's like, oh my God, the pressure of making this in silver or gold, even worse, God, no. But the copper itself is a beautiful material and you can do everything that you want to do in copper that you could do in gold or silver. But it just gave you the freedom to just go wild and just see what happens. So it actually just developed from that centerpiece. And then through the 3D printing, I use Fusion 360. So just by building up layers on that computer program rather than actually doing a drawing because the drawing wasn't really doing it for me. But the 3D idea of push it out further and give it a dome. And to me, it's like the outside layer of it is like padding and it was protecting her. It was protecting the little girl from the outside world. So I just love that. So I went like, oh, this is fantastic. Let's see how far it goes. And so we made a brooch and then I went, oh, this would be brilliant as a medallion. And then they're like, oh, brilliant, a medallion. This is like a war hero. It's basically a badge to say, you know, congratulations, you've done brilliantly. Like show off the world that you've been through this and you've come out and you're like standing tall and strong. And to me, it was just a great idea and a great symbolism of triumph. That one came together in a day or two, as in just the planning of it. Now, the making was different because it takes a lot longer to make it, but the whole idea just grew out, grew legs. I did want to ask what 3D printer you have. I also have a 3D printer. 
coming from a ceramics perspective and you coming from maybe more of a jewellery perspective, I understand that the uses of it are very different. I would use it for specific tools or stamps and used it to create some forms to make for slip casting and things. I have a Prusa 3D printer, but I was just curious as to what your printer is and what materials you'd be printing in. Printer I have is an anti-cubic and it's a, a mega X. So because we were all in lockdown when I was deciding what to do, I was looking at all the different printers and the prices, the actual space that you have to print. I didn't go for Prusa because one, it was a lot more expensive than the anti-cubic X. I'm not like a millionaire. <laughs> so I was like, I was kind of trying to figure out what I could do. I'm going to interrupt you there and no. say, I am also not a millionaire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish I was. <laughs> the price of the Prusa was, I think it was 350 euros. It was not a lot. It's a lot, but like not a lot compared to some of them out there that you, you do all the research for. It's got quite a large printing bed, so it's 30 by 30 by 30 high. So you could actually do large scale things in it. So I was thinking I could go big on this. What could we do? And like yourself, you were saying you used it for model making. The heads I had were printed originally. People go onto the Instagram, you can see little white ceramic porcelain heads on the table at the end. They were 3D printed, pardon me, first, and then they were made into moulds plaster moulds and then they were slip cast so that was something that I was trying to do before the lockdown and the idea was that I'd have maybe 20 of them or more all in one necklace so when you walked into a room that they all clanged against each other so the idea was to bring sound into the practice because I have a few pieces that are 3D printed also in the master show that are quite large so the idea of having a large bed meant I could do large pieces. So I have very large links. One of them is a very heavy piece. It's based on the anchor of a ship. So those big heavy chains that you have. This story was about a person who's going through IVF treatment. And in her story, she mentions how heavy she felt. And we have a few conversations since the story because she was a friend. So I could actually go back and have a conversation with her. And it was trying to bring over the idea of a large, heavy piece that would weigh her down. So I was like, oh, the chains are fantastic. And then with 3D printing, you can print it hollow. So each link is like a hollow form and I filled it with silica beads. So they're actually quite heavy when you lift them. So to lift the whole necklace, which is really heavy, I hold my 3D prints as I do them and all my jewellery up on back of the studio has Billy bookcases nailed outdoors so I have all these hooks behind it on them so I hang up things and I look at them and I go is that working is it not working and I was putting it up on the hooks and I hurt my shoulder and it was about two months before the shoulder <laughs> came back to being able to push a file straight properly because but the idea was like oh my gosh this is killing my arm but actually that's the whole idea of the piece was that it's heavy and you could put it on and feel the weight so the 3D printer was fundamentally brilliant it was just a game changer. There's also in that series, there's a necklace that has giant pearls all in different sizes. Not tapered pearls, but they're sequence pearls. Or There is a word for it in the trade and I can't remember. What, but they go in different sizes. They're like tapered up. So there's like one large one in the centre and they come up on the side. When you put it on, it's quite you know tactile and it's very feminine. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't look feminine, but when you put it on, you feel like, oh, it's quite you know, sexy. Do you know what I mean? It's great. Like, But they all move and inside there's silica beads inside there's a matrix that makes the noise every time they move it that kind of runs like a little sand running through a time dial so you can hear the sound kind of running through so it's again that came from the 3d printing for the ceramic pieces you could walk into a room and it would make a noise so it's in my mind it all makes sense but they all link to each other so they may not look the same but they have the same idea same thread going through the whole lot of them Actually, there's a really, really long one that had, I think it was 307 small pearls that, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it was, it's quite long. So it actually goes to the ceiling in the NCD gallery and comes down to the ground. And there's a few more extra little pooled around. And 
the idea was like 107 were the number of injections that this girl had to try and get through one IVF treatment. And I was like, this is something I have to put into it. So in my mind, I'm looking for ways to incorporate the full story as much as possible. It might not be one piece, it might be a collection of pieces for the one story, but they're all integrated together. Can I ask you about your involvement with ACJSNI? How did you find ACJSNI? What inspired you to take part? The first time I saw ACJSNI was in a Findings magazine article or something like that, because the ACJSNI is part of ACJ, which is UK based. And I already was a part of ACJ. I've been a member for, oh God, like 10 years, maybe or something like that. But I've only become really active since oh gosh since my master's even before that's so the last four or five years maybe and then the last two or three years I've really kind of got into the ACJSNI because I think I applied for Heritage was it the last year's Christmas show in the Craft and I and I put one of my pieces in it was one of my own ones it was about Grange Gorman it's quite a large piece and I think two smaller ones and it was the first time that I'd actually applied to anything with the mental health pieces. So I was kind of cautious and I was very kind of like, I don't know what's going to go happen here and will it work or not? And they were accepted and I was delighted and I was like, oh my God, someone actually wants to see these or they want to actually show these. So Ace Jason and I really pushed me to enter more competitions, enter more exhibitions. It's a great community. Everybody in East JSNI that I've met have been so encouraging. They have been wonderful people who are actually interested in what you are making and what your plans are in a genuine safe area that you can say something to someone about what your plans are for whatever piece you're going to have ahead of you. And you know that they're not going to mock it or they're not going to go, oh, right. Why are you doing that for? You know, because they have beautiful sense of community. Like everyone is different. Everyone has their own style. Everyone has their own story, actually. Everyone has their own involvement or own reason for their involvement in the ACJ SNI. But I found it to be such a welcoming place, such a wonderful place that I am now trying to do what I can to push it further in that ACJ SNI really started as we are. And then it went to ACJ S, no, M, N, I. The Association of Contemporary Jewellers and Silversmiths Northern Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> Take every opportunity I can now. So because I love this group so much, they have very kindly put me as, as a committee member. So that's wonderful for me because it's a group of people saying that what I have to say is relevant, that what I make is good enough. This idea that you're not good enough for anything, I suffer from that quite a lot. So it was wonderful to be asked. So one of the first things that ACJS and I had asked was that I come on board with them and help them pick which participants were going to exhibit within the Curiosities and Collectibles exhibition. So I was delighted and it was wonderful. And then we have a project coming up called Armagh. Well, we're titling it the Armagh Project, which I'm really excited about. I don't want to go into too much detail because it's still in the beginning stages. So really happy to do that. Really excited about it. I'm also going to try and get some more of a Republic of Ireland people involved in this because it is an all of Ireland group, really. And we need a bit more representation from the south of Ireland. So hopefully I can get that going. But yeah, the ACS and I is a wonderful place. Beautiful people, fantastic camaraderie. There's always a project <laughs> in the pipeline. And it's just a really exciting place to be because it's like as if you are actually, you're moving. You know, you're helping the movement to get further. And I want to listen. If you see open calls, please go for them because you don't know what's going to come out of them. And they could be amazing things. And they probably are amazing, but they could be turning points for your own projects or your own 
Berkham practice or even your self-esteem because it's just great to be accepted into these things. And I know I applied for a lot of open calls and different exhibitions and you do get a lot of no's, but I think that comes with the territory and you don't know what the people on the other side are looking for. I would actually would say, and I say to a few girls who asked me there during the week, that if you are applying for open calls, please tailor your application to the open call because especially with the, we were doing the picking for who was going to be in the exhibition, there was a lot of people who they just put the pieces in with no explanation as to why they were applying for this because the Ace JSNI panel and Craft and I panel, they had put in a little blurb as to why they were doing it and what, what they wanted to have in the exhibition. And I think if people are doing open calls and they do put these kind of stipulations in that just to make the effort, because if it's seen that you haven't got to make an effort, you're knocked out because it's just like you haven't made the effort to actually tailor this to the open call. I think it would be very helpful because I think I a lot of people don't think of it from the side of selecting. And I know yeah. whenever you do apply and you kind of get no's or things like that, you can take it really personally. Like it's hard to sort of see yourself as separate from your work sometimes, which obviously that's the more professional thing to do. So I think to know that that's an aspect that can be taken in, but it's purely how you've written your application that can go against you. You know, I think that's a very helpful thing to know. So I think it's very possible. Yeah, because they were, I know even not on this one, but there were a few of them that I did an exhibition years ago and as a curator and organiser. And I was just, it was interesting to see that the work could be amazing. It could be absolutely fantastic. But if you have got the pictures to back it up, and that is quite a difficult thing because you either need to know how to do a good picture or you have to pay somebody a lot of money to do a good picture. And sometimes you don't realise how important that picture is because if it's a really bad picture, then they're going to knock you out. It could be an amazing piece and the picture could just knock you to six and you're wondering why you're not getting into these things. And it could be just the professional picture is what's getting you in. Like it's hard to explain. But yes. Sorry, I do love that we have a fantastic photographer, Simon, yes. who takes photos of the work while it's there. So even for ourselves for the ACJS and I archive do you know we've got good cohesive looking photographs I think it's helpful also as a participant to have those photographs of your work for applying for future exhibitions but photographs make such a difference and oh yeah and really applying for things yeah. there's so many pieces I let go without taking a photograph and I'm like why did I take a photograph it's gone now I can't take it I can't take it back to get a photograph of it so Absolutely. it's just it's a balance I suppose so we just wanted to hear a little bit more about your perspective as a participant of the Collectibles and Curiosity exhibition, which was exhibited at the Craft and I Gallery in Belfast until the 30th of December 2022. Well, I applied for it originally because I wasn't finished with the Linden Museum project with the Ore Space. But in the research part of that, you're brought into the Linden Museum and you were showed around and you were given access to the Linden Museum. We were given a beautiful tour. We saw all the fantastic machines. And it was like, to me, that was a, quite a culture shock because being from Dublin and Republic of Ireland, I had no idea that the linen history, it's probably my own fault really, but I had no idea how much of an impact the linen industry had on Northern Ireland and just in the whole culture of it and how many people used to work in it and how many people used to be like independent little kind of workers of their own little cottages and it was how it all came together into one massive industry and I just thought this is amazing. I can't believe I didn't know anything about it beforehand. So I had all this energy and itchy fingers to do a bit more in it. So I thought I'd use the research they had and transferred into something I could apply for this exhibition with. So I took the damask pictures of the machines. Damask machine, I've forgotten the name of it at the moment, but it punches holes. Basically, I think one of the first computers in the world, I think, was a damask 
program, wasn't it, I think? But that really kind of captured something in me. I thought, OK, we're going to transfer these over and see what happens. In my mind, it was curiosity that had brought me to this exhibition work. So that's my curiosity part of it. And I thought each one is individual. Each one that I make will be one-offs. So they are collectibles. So in my perspective, they are collectible and curiosities. And I applied with them for the exhibition. They were end up being silver earrings and pendants and a large medallion style piece with a bit of enamel in it. So they all have acid etched into their surfaces, images that I'd taken from this exhibition or for the research of it. Each piece of jewellery is a hollow form. It's again, fly pressed. They're quite deep, they're quite big, but they're quite light. So I wanted to do not massive pieces because there is one massive piece along the same lines of the style of the previous exhibitions I'd done. So I, there was a bit of a Claude Malloy style one there where it has a massive big silver piece. It's all engraved and acid etched and has its enamel in centre. But these earrings and pendants were so subtle that I actually love them. I want to keep them all. <laughs> no one's allowed to buy them because <laughs> I want to keep them all. That kind of preciousness to them because they are silver and change from using the copper in my work practice. Like because myself and other people who are probably listening, they're all kind of, we're like jewelry as we work away with press metals all the time so you lose that sometimes if you're press, using gold and silver all the time you forget that it's a precious metal so by making these earrings in this in this exhibition it was like oh these are to me more precious now because they have all that history and that research into them as opposed to i would say um a retail ring or something like that the exhibition was to me amazing as well because it was i think the first international exhibition that the craft and i had done and we had some amazing and i know i'm using this word so many times it's it's kind of dulling it but it was great amazing artists in here both in Irish artists and artists from like where they from from Spain and oh gosh where else are they from from Australia they're like everywhere it's, it's just a wonderful collection of people there and it looked fantastic so I have to say the girls did a, an amazing job of putting it all together because when we came up on the opening night I brought my kids me God love them they loved it I loved it it was just fantastic the colours were as the backgrounds were, were picked were just genius I thought they were absolutely wonderful they had like different kind of shapes and colors and they really made everything pop so you could see without interruption what was there there was a beautiful mixture of the boxes and the open pieces so you could actually almost touch them like I don't know if you could now but like you could almost touch them and I love that because like like this Munich coming up Munich Jewelry Week's coming up now in March and I'm going for the week and I'm loving it and I think that's a fantastic thing place that you have to go if you're a jeweler art jeweler you need to go there and experience it but they have this idea of laying pieces out in the open and I think it doesn't happen very often in Ireland because you kind of want to box things in so often that it's lovely to be able to just see the work and of course with permission you're allowed to touch it but like I don't have permission but to like because I say I'm tactile and I love to feel the weight of something and the look of it and just it's an awe it's something I can't explain with words really well it's just I have to pick it up I have to examine it and it's not about how good is this made it's about how they came about their making process how they made the piece and sometimes you can only get that by looking at it especially in the art jewelry world where it's very different to the retail setting where everything's behind the glass and you're like afraid to ask for that ring but like it's beautiful to see other people's processes and how they made it and be able to touch something so unusual and so different yes that's what I loved about it the length of time that it was open was great because things that are on for a week or two you don't automatically get a chance to go see these things to have it on for that long was just quite good because my sister could go up to north and go see it my friends could go up north when they were up there and go see it it was lovely to have that space of time that you knew that this work was going to be there and you could say it to, you know, your friends or your followers, like, listen, if you're in Belfast, please go in and see this. You have 
nearly two months to go and look for it and see other works that you wouldn't see normally in Northern Crafton or even in Ireland because these makers, they have submitted their work for this exhibition and it's, it's like a once in a lifetime opportunity to see these people and their work in Ireland because we're so small. I think we need to punch a bit heavier in the land of jewellery anyway, in, in art jewellery, because I don't see the Irish Ireland or IRE in a lot of the exhibition names coming up and I'm like there should be more Irish representation because we are talented we are strong we are really good we just need to get out and show at the world that we're brilliant because we are and we have a huge pool of creative talent within ceramics within silverware within jewellery within even woodwork there's a beautiful lace maker that we had in the Lisburn exhibition again something that I opened my eyes to it was the lace work that she was doing all handmade and it was just this is so special and we need to be able to push ourselves forward no, you could totally form like a proper protest. I don't know. I'm backing you anyway, Clodagh. That's absolutely, <laughs> that was a rising speech. Totally. You should go annoy Craft and I and go annoy the Crafts Council of Ireland and go to Doyle. Yeah. <laughs> listen. Yeah. Clodagh said we're great. That's we're fabulous. We have such talent. There's a lot of like silent makers, people who are like quietly making, like there's an exhibition called Made in Ireland and that's where I get that from. One of the talks there was a lot of quiet makers in Ireland. A lot of people working away in their own little areas, in their own little studios and they're all over Ireland and I don't think we have enough representation of our greatness because we are fantastic as a creative island as a whole. It's not just Republic of Northern Ireland, it's like the whole of Ireland is really, really strong. We need to show it. I think like culturally though, we're quite humble as well. I mean, there's pride, but there, you know, it's harder culturally to kind of go and be like, look what we've done, like we're amazing mm-hmm. and kind of have that platform. But as you say, like it's absolutely needed and I think anytime you know, I go to Schmeck or any other kind of international event, you do really feel the lack of representation. You really yeah, Absolutely, yeah. Completely agree. Yeah, is it the same yeah. as ceramics? Like, or I, yeah. Or... So last year I went to Italy, thanks to Ceramics mm-hmm. Ireland and DCCI, DCCI, OI, <laughs> the Crafts Council's outside. <laughs> and it was phenomenal. It was absolutely beautiful and huge ceramics festival in Italy that had been postponed from the pandemic and so on. So many people from Europe all coming into this one area and suddenly... Ireland was the guest country. We were there. It was fantastic. It was one of those opportunities where it was, instead of us going there and being like, why isn't Ireland here? We were there representing Ireland and it felt fantastic. It felt great. There was such an amazing response. You know, there was an absolutely stunning exhibition that ran alongside it that had also ran here uh, for a point of time, but seeing it in this whole other international setting was just so inspiring it was really beautiful the whole point of it is whenever we came home and since then afterwards as a group of us we've just said well what's next what are we doing next what we need to keep this momentum going and we need to keep this enthusiasm going as well we need to just go beyond our little space here that we have. Clona I was actually going to say to you you were saying about going to Schmick I haven't gone to Schmick in so long like before covid and everything like that but it would be great if we could get maybe a wee group of people or if we're saying on the podcast you know to get in touch with acjs and i and we'll try and organize a larger group of people that can all kind of go over so if you haven't gone to schmuck before that you've got a bit of company and we'll kind of guide you as best we know around the exhibitions because it really is a fantastic mm-hmm. experience and i think the more people that are exposed to that as well the more, I was going to say angry, but empowered you'll feel to kind of want to have, you know, international exhibitions because it does make such a difference. If anyone's listening and wants to go to Schmuck, 
send us a message. Yeah, I definitely want to go. Let's do this. Let's do, yeah, do podcast on tour. Oh, that be okay. Right when? Yeah, March seventh to thirteenth. Oh that's my birthday. birthday. We could do a podcast birthday tour. Oh my god, that's amazing. <laughs> okay, so it has to happen. We're making yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. It's in a podcast. We have to do it. And everybody has to bring me a present. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we're going to practice what we preach and we're going to follow through. Yeah. Even if it's just one of us that goes, I'm going to keep Um, on this. (laughs) Don't you dare. (laughs) We're just going to have to have an outtake section, I think, from now on. Bloopers. Yeah. Yeah. There was actually a question not related to the podcast necessarily, but how do you puff up your pieces so you were talking about the little girl puffed up and surrounded because I know there's Kim Buck who does sort of inflated work but he laser welds it and then forces air into it into us. Yeah, yeah yeah is that similar for yourself or no. <laughs> no. I've been so fat because it seems like such a light delicate ethereal kind of tactility to it but I can't quite figure out unless you're like fly pressing molds and stuff onto yeah. it is that it yeah. so then how do you custom cut that sort of fly press mold there's two ways you can do it by hand mm-hmm. um a lot of time and if you have access to a laser machine they can cut perspex half the time <laughs> but it's not necessary to have access to a laser cutter you just have to make sure it's a lot of work it's, it's why it's art jewelry because it's not meant to be like a multiple thing but you could in theory make multiples but once you've made your master mold kind of thing no each one has its own perspex die right so you've got a tap and a die like there is like a positive and a negative yeah the way i do it is i do like there's a square outside we'll say for example and there's a circle on the inside and then maybe 20 millimeters in there'd be another circle so then you have your negative so you'd have the outside frame and then you'd have the inside kind of stopper so what you're left with then is like an empty space around we'll say the center circle and that's where the metal will be pushed into so you're just going to make sure that your, for example, my, my words are on the right side when I go and fold, when I press it so that it's pressing out and not in. But then again, you know, I have done it the wrong way around and it's turned quite nice. So, you, you know, turn the mistakes into a positive by maybe redesigning it again and then do maybe two pieces, one negative and one positive. So basically, it's it's either hand cut perspex or it's laser cut perspex. It's whatever you have to hand because sometimes you don't have access. They're ones we did in the, in the Masters were done in the industrial design department because they have a lovely laser cutter. Massive, massive thing. Lots of tens of thousands of money, <laughs> but like because no one has access. No company really, unless you're a commercial or have the money to buy that. So the college have one and every Friday morning, the metals department would have the beautiful girl called Claire McCluskey who would cut all our pieces for us. Yeah, so if you have access to a laser cutter, it's much faster. And is it kind of like a vacuum form where it takes a very exact shape or do you, are you literally putting like a, ro- a sausage of clay kind of thing you know and it's, it's sort of stuck in it's a vacuum oh. form type thing where you're it, it'll only take on what's there so if you have cut out the wrong part of it or you have one side is not the wrong dimension like if it's more pointy on one side than the other that's going to show up mm. every time you press it there's no room for a mistake in the end piece you got to make sure that you're master is perfect yeah. it's like if you're doing retail jewelry you make thousands you've got to make sure your masterpiece jewelry is perfect before you can reproduce it otherwise each one that you reproduce will have that same mistake and then you're spending time fixing it and you're like oh start again this is the nature of the beast <laughs> thank you so much for this absolutely wonderful conversation Claudia. no thank you it, was, it has been fantastic i loved it it was great and it's great to share what i'm up to and to talk to you about it and all the rest so it's, it's really good Thank you for asking. Well, thank you. And we will see you in Munich. Yep. For Schmuck. Oh, yeah.
Definitely, I'll expect yeah. you there. Yeah, I'll expect you there. Thank you again, Cloda, for a beautiful conversation about your making practice. We will now hear voice clips from participants of the Collectibles and Curiosities exhibition. These are Rosie Deegan, Claude Malloy and Carmen Lopez. My name is Rosie Deegan and I'm an artist based in Nottingham in the UK. I work with various materials, in particular ones that are associated with being luxurious or fragile and combine them with existing objects that have a familiar practical purpose. Most of my work is made from a combination of kiln cast glass, found objects and precious metals, including one of my earliest pieces of work, which I called For a Man of Substance. For a Man of Substance is a collection of impotent tools inspired by the cabinet maker's toolbox that was made by English furniture company Benchmark. When I was making For a Man of Substance back in 2014, the cabinet maker's toolbox had been available as a made-to-order item for quite a few years. I'm not sure if you can still buy it, actually. I remember it being available to buy for about £20,000. I came across an online article marketing the toolbox called Luxury Gifts for a Man of Substance, hence where the name came from. It described the toolbox as a beautifully crafted set of manliness that makes you reminisce about all those days when your special man potters around the house in his faded denims fixing everything you broke. I've always enjoyed exploring the purpose and function of different everyday objects, especially when they are connected to traditional gender stereotypes. The tools in the cabinet maker's toolbox and how they are displayed are clearly too beautiful to risk damage in functional use. Their beauty is legitimised for men through their association with masculine functional use. In this sense, it is not the tools that represent stereotypical masculinity, but using the tools that represents it. Ironically, these decorative qualities mean that many would choose not to use the toolbox in a practical sense. In contrast, many functional objects are decorated to comply with our culture's attitude towards women and practicality. This is because beauty is heavily associated with femininity, Just as there is an expectation on men to be practical and demonstrate their masculinity, I feel that there is also an expectation on women to be decorative in order to demonstrate their femininity. A few years ago, I was invited to take part in a project with five other contemporary craft makers. The brief was to create our own idea of a tool, which would then be sent on to another maker to be used to make a new object. Makers and Tools was a project coordinated and curated by Melody Vaughan, who is a wonderful curator, writer and mentor. She curated two projects, one in 2017 and one in 2019. I took part in her earlier project in 2017. With my practice being so heavily influenced by tools, being given the opportunity to make my own tool was a really exciting notion for me. But there were so many tools out there and I wasn't sure what to make. After talking to my oldest childhood friend, a memory came into my mind of when I was younger. One day, when I was a young child, I was sitting at the kitchen table watching my mother. She had a small pair of scissors and a fresh bouquet of lilies that she'd just bought, and she was snipping parts of the lily off. I asked her what she was doing, and she said that she was removing the stamen because the pollen on them made her sneeze and that it would stain everything. Later that year, I remember learning about the parts of a flower in biology 
and it made me think about the time that my mum was cutting away the stamen from the lilies. I realised that she'd been cutting off the male parts of the flowers. As the formidable woman that she has always been, it seemed quite amusing and fitting that this act of lily castrating is what she had been doing. I began to wonder about the act of buying and displaying flowers, a pastime that seems to be performed predominantly by women. The amusing image of a women's institute group meeting to buy lilies and snip off stamen together came into my mind. An act performed for very practical reasons, but that could be interpreted as an act of misandry. I designed the lily castrator as a tool for the easy removal of stubborn stamen wherever a woman finds herself. Each of my lily castrators are made using traditional metalwork techniques, sharp enough to remove that stubborn stamen from your life, but harmless enough so that you can wear it around your neck without the worry of potentially snipping off something else. They're available in 24 karat gold-plated bronze or silver-plated bronze and come with various coloured cords of your choice. Hi, my name is Clodagh Malloy. I am an art jeweller and designer maker from Dublin. The pieces I have created for the Collectibles and Curiosities exhibition are one-of-a-kind sterling silver round and oval pendants and earrings. These hollow forms have damask detailing acid etched into their surfaces. There is also a large sterling silver hollow form medallion with a handmade sterling silver chain. The surface of the large medallion style neck piece has flaxseed pods etched into it. In the centre of this medallion is an enamelled panel also depicting the flaxseed pods. The damask and flaxseed pod jewellery are both a continuation and a completion of a previous exhibition project. The Reuse and Reimagine exhibition in the Ore Space in Lisburn that showed in August this year. In that collaborative project, the selected eight participants were given the use of 10 metres of a beautiful high quality linen and were given a tour and access beyond that to the Irish Linen Museum in Lisburn. In that project, I intentionally did not use any metalworking skills, working only in the linen, trying to push my own boundaries of jewellery and body adornment. That project resulted in a quilted style collar and cuff using images taken from the machinery in the Linen Museum and a standalone white multi-layered collar reflecting on a passing comment about wearing too many shirts. There was a lot of research that had been collected for that project and I wanted to use it. I still had some unfinished ideas. The damask pattern board in the Linen Museum fascinated me. In particular, the processes and the subtle finish to the damask material. I transferred this subtle damask pattern from images taken at the Linen Museum onto the surface of the jewellery using the processes of PMP acid etching. I then shaped the sterling silver sheet using a number of perspex dies and a hydraulic press. The forms were then soldered together. The results being large yet light hollow earrings and pendants with a subtle detailing of damask. The same process was used to make the large medallion with the soft details of the linen seed pods. The Collectibles and Curiosities exhibition was an enjoyable step into producing more subtle wearable jewellery than what I create in my own art jewellery practice, which focuses on bringing awareness to mental health issues through a body of work that examines and instigates a dialogue around the subject of mental ill health. In my ongoing Shared Stories project, I collect stories that have voluntarily been shared with me and translate them into body adornments. My project brings a physical item into being about their own individual story, about their struggle and their fight to be seen. I am giving examples to others to show that they are not alone and that they can come through tough times. What is special about my project is that I'm collecting people's live, lived stories 
They are not statistical numbers. I'm currently working on a large-scale installation of 365 copper swing tags. These hollow-form tags will have words and messages etched into their surfaces. If there's a story that you would like to share, you can email or direct message me. I also have a form where stories can be submitted anonymously on my website, which is clodemaloy.com. Carmen's current work is based on creating portable objects, narrative and conceptual jewels that, under some suggestive title, she produces in limited series. She works with various materials, but always includes fire enamel pieces and spoons, the leitmotif of her work. Spoons are a recurring and constant element for her. They represent the fundamental idea of most of her creations, the common thread. The spoon came into her creative world as a lifeline when she felt abandoned by the muses that had guided her earlier. Her body had changed, her emotions, her motherhood. Her busy world came to a halt and in the depths of her home she found the object that had propelled her, a wooden spoon. Since then, she has collected them, she received them as gifts, she makes them out of copper and covers them with enamels. She carries a spoon in her backpack as a charm. Sometimes she photographs it, sometimes she draws it, and if she's hungry, she can eat with it. Her current world in jewelry is also closely related to nature and recycled elements as a consequence of the world we live in now and from which it is impossible for her to abstract herself. In Curious Spoon Pendants, Carmen combines two profane elements, the enamel reproduction of a log and a spoon. The union between the two produces the effect of a medallion or jewel of religious evocation, a confusion that clears up as soon as we observe it carefully. Carmen has always been attracted to symbolic pieces of jewelry, especially those that tell us about beliefs or superstitions. Locks are used to open or close doors, chests, perhaps secrets. Spoons help us to feed ourselves, to survive. With this type of work, she wanted to take an unexpected turn and invoke a different emotion. With the combination of the two intertwined objects, she wanted to create an iconic piece an image that tells us of another possibility outside of its original uses. The materials she has used for this are enamel, nickel silver spoon and patinated silver. Carmen would like to end with a fragment of the poem The Spoon by Richard Jones. Some days I think I need nothing more in life than a spoon. Thank you so much to the makers involved in this episode, Clodagh Malloy, Rosie Deegan and Carmen Lopez. And also thank you to ACJ SNI for this collaborative series. This collaboration has been funded by the Arts Council of Northern Ireland. If anyone is interested in joining us for Munich Jewellery Week, held between the 6th to the 12th of March, please get in touch with Robin Galway through your Instagram at Robin Galway Jewellery. Links for further information about this episode and others in this series are available at makingconversationspodcast.com. 